is Victorian Scribblers, an informal exploration of the lives and work of lesser-known Victorian writers. I'm Courtney Floyd, a doctoral candidate in 19th century literature and print culture at the University of Oregon. And I'm Eleanor Dunville, a PhD student in Victorian literature and publishing at Loughborough University in the UK. Welcome to episode nine. Today we're going to be talking about Thomas Adolphus Trollope and Theodosia Garrow Trollope. So in episode seven and eight, we covered Francis Milton Trollope's life and work. Today we're turning to her son and her first daughter-in-law. So I thought it'd be nice to begin with where Thomas Adolphus Trollope kind of begins his memoir. And I guess from now on we'll be referring to him as Tom because it's just easier also, he explicitly states that his memoir is not supposed to be an autobiography, so that's an interesting thing to note. Hmm. And he begins that memoir by speaking of his credentials as a babbler of reminiscences. I have been here so many years, and then those years have comprised the best part of the 19th century, a century during which change has been more rapidly at work among all surroundings of Englishmen than probably during any other century of which social history has to tell. So shall we talk through some of that history? Yeah, there's a lot happening, as Tom suggests. In 1807, Giuseppe Garibaldi is born in Nice. In 1810, Margaret Fuller, the brilliant transcendentalist, editor, writer and feminist you've probably never heard about because we're too hung up on Thoreau and Emerson, was born. In 1812, the first edition of Grimm's Children's and Household Tales was published. From 1814 to 15, I'm not really sure how it overlaps, I guess it must have taken a long time. The Congress of Vienna takes place and restores the independent states of Italy as they'd existed prior to the Napoleonic Wars. Those states were quite strongly influenced by other European powers and some were directly ruled by others. And it's also where Switzerland's famous policy of neutrality began. In 1816, Rossini's The Barbara of Seville premieres in Rome. In 1819, Queen Victoria was born, Alexandrina Victoria, to the Duke and Duchess of Kent on May 24th. In 1831, the Young Italy group was created by Giuseppe Mazzini with the aim of creating a unified Italian republic. In 1834, Garibaldi takes part in a Mazzinian insurrection attempt at Piedmont. He is sentenced to death and flees to Marseille. In 1838, Charles Dickens' Oliver Twist is published. From 1847 to 8, the Brontes published Jane Eyre, Wuthering Heights and The Tenant of Wildfell Hall. From 1848 to 9, Garibaldi returns from exile and commands a Republican army in the First Italian War of Independence. And from the 1850s to the 1880s, Louis Pasteur, Joseph Lister and Robert Cox work independently develops and gives credence to a germ theory of disease. In 1861, Italy is unified following the Second Italian War of Independence. The Piazza Maria Antonia, where Valino Trollope was located, is renamed Piazza dell'Independenza to recognize its centrality to the unification. And Jonathan Carr creates the Garibaldi biscuit while working for Peak Frains. And Eleanor has linked a recipe in the show notes. It's a bit of a tongue twister. I have no idea how you pronounce it. Yeah, that's an interesting last name. Yeah, I found a recipe for vegan Garibaldi biscuits. Ooh. Which is fun. Have to try those out. 
1882, Gary Baldy dies. From 1887 to 1889, the Eiffel Tower uh, was under construction as the entrance to the 1889 World's Fair. In 1890, Japan's first written constitution goes into effect. And in 1892, Ellis Island becomes point of entry for immigrants to the U.S. So today's episode, we are... splitting into two. We're going to start with Tom because he was born first and then cut off, reel back the clock, talk about Theodosia, um, and and then move forward chronologically from there. Born April 29th, 1810 to, as you already know if you've been listening along, Thomas Anthony Trollope and Francis Milton Trollope. Tom had a childhood full of fun from his mother, full of stress from his father, and um, a whole bunch of siblings to share it with. In 1820, he goes up to Winchester, which is a school that his father went to. There he becomes a prefect, while his brother Henry flunks out. Yeah, I feel like I should make a compulsory Harry Potter joke here, but I like that's all my brain is providing. Like, say a Harry Potter joke, it's not actually giving me a joke, so just pretend I said one that's hilarious, and we'll move on. I will laugh as if he said something hilarious. (laughs) (laughs) So his younger brother, Anthony, remembered him as something of a bully during school days. And maybe it's that he's a prefect, so he had to be strict, or Anthony was a troublemaker. In his memoir, he writes, quote, At Winchester, the subjection of those below them in college to the prefects or upper class was not only recognised, but enforced by authorities. The result was that anything of the nature of bullying was infinitely rarer at Winchester than at Harrow. So Tom thinks that because the, basically to put it in modern terms, because the jocks can't bully people, it's only the prefects doing the bullying. Tom says there's no bullying at all. It doesn't count. (laughs) (laughs) And at one point he has this anecdote about how younger boys were sent to get beer from the cellar and the younger boys have to serve the prefect at tea parties, which is kind of a weird mix of rebellious and very proper. He claims that they're only allowed to drink beer, and the masters would smash their tea things up if they're caught with them. Weird. It's so opposite anything you might expect. This is giving me flashbacks to, I finally read um, Charlotte Young's The Daisy Chain, which is a Oh gosh, I can't even remember what year it came out. It's So I haven't actually read it, but I have a copy because it's got a really cool... Um, I can probably take some pictures and put them in the show notes, but it's got a really cool index of other things that were published around the same time. Oh, nice. And the prices. I love books with that, like the, the booksellers um, or the publishers' catalogs in the back. I've got a few of those myself. It's really fascinating to see what was being marketed alongside what. It's so interesting. So my copy's from 1895, but it's published in 1856. Or she wrote the preface in 1856. That's what I was thinking. It was a mid-Victorian kind of children's novel. Not really. It just follows this whole family for a very long period of time. It's a long book. I would recommend reading it just so that I could rant with you about how much I hate the ending. But I had a point in mentioning it, which is that there's this whole extended episode 
um, about some brothers who are all going to the same school and one of them's a prefect and the other one's getting the younger one's getting into a lot of trouble and the dynamics of that at school versus at home are really examined and that just really kind of brought to life um, what Tom is reminiscing about here. Oh, that's really interesting. I we have a kind of favorite not favorite but there's a really funny anecdote in my family because my brother not my brother who is he my dad (laughs) his my uncle so his brother-in-law obviously who wasn't married to my aunt at the time um basically her his sister's good boyfriend i guess was a prefect and a couple of years above him Mm -hmm. and set my dad lines for i think it was cycling without a helmet it was something bizarre but he wasn't going to give his brother-in-law any like slack, made him write the lines as well. And we found those lines that he'd been made to write the other year. It's, it's, uh, I think most people tend to like when they're in a position of authority, be harder on their friends and family, just so they don't look like they're playing favorites, which is sort of unfortunate for the friends and family because they're getting an extra tough time. <laughs> Yeah, you can kind of see why they do it, the people that set the lines, but absolutely. And why, yeah, and why Antony might feel like he was being bullied, even if that wasn't happening, although it's unclear what actually was happening. Yeah, I just really love that they're big ribbon having a tea party. <laughs> yeah, that's a good image. Uh, so Tom leaves Winchester, graduates, I guess, or... Everyone had to leave when they turned 18. So there's some weird specific rules where I think if you're a relative of the guy who set it up, Wycombe, I think is his name, you can stay for longer. But if you're not a relative, as soon as you turn 18, you have to leave. Hmm. And I don't get the impression you had to pass any kind of exam. You just get turfed out. Your time there is done and you have to move on. Interesting. Yeah. It's a very odd setup. Yeah, so he leaves in July 1828 when he's 18 and embarks on a voyage with his father to the US. But it seems like Winchester had a huge effect on him because he talks about himself as a Wickhamite for the rest of his life. And he publishes something when he, I think, must be around his 60s of like reminiscences of a Wickhamite huh. and has a, dedicates quite a lot of his memoirs to the difference between Harrow and Winchester and how superior Winchester is to Harrow. I just wonder if it's like the first time he's had a clear father figure in his life because his father is such a dud. Yeah, I guess a strong male presence definitely can't hurt. Yeah. And I think I read that he was on some kind of... He basically says that he's there on a scholarship, but he's never made to feel like a charity boy. Mm. On his return from America, he gets some disappointing news. He learns that he didn't get a place in New College, Oxford, like his father had. But his father manages to get him a place in one of the lesser halls, Albin Hall, in October 1829. So my question is, like, I guess I don't understand the system of halls at Oxford that well because it's so different from American universities. Like, you don't get a place at a college, at like a hall at a college, you just go to the college. Do you have a better sense of that, Eleanor? Oxford and Cambridge both do this, and they're a little bit unusual and different from other UK universities as well. Oxford and Cambridge have colleges, 
within the university. So I did my undergrad at York, which also has colleges, but colleges at York are basically just a fancier way of referring to halls. So it's just the building where you live. At Oxford and Cambridge, you're taught within the college. So it's almost like a university within the university. So there are certain colleges that are more prestigious. Kings and Trinity at Cambridge are really prestigious. We've probably got listeners who went to Oxford or Cambridge and will disagree with me. But as someone who didn't, they're the ones that are heard of as being prestigious. Yeah, because the teaching is held within the colleges, it is almost like a different university experience, I guess, depending on which college you're in. I see. I guess it's like um, honors colleges here in the US, except that there are lots of them under one, like several different varieties under one umbrella institution, as opposed to just like having one at a university here. Yeah, I think the best... I guess the best parallel would maybe be the University of California. Mm-hmm. Kind of like you don't get into the University of California, you get into Berkeley or UCLA. It's the same kind of way of thinking. But you just tell people you're <laughs> going to the University of California. Yeah. Okay, yeah. that makes sense. It's also kind of a weird time because there's only actually 10 universities in the UK at this time. That's interesting. Yeah, now every town has one, if not two, but most of those yeah. come up a little bit later. Huh. And Oxford is the oldest. I think it's the oldest university in the world, actually, but I could be making that up. That sounds right, but I'm just willing to believe you. <laughs> I will fact check and potentially put a correction in the show notes. Yeah. Well, it's like back in the uh, early... <sighs> In the 1800s in the U.S., Harvard wasn't that prestigious because it was just, like, one of the only places that you could go. So, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, I think historically Oxford has a lot of ties with um, the church. And if you're going to become a member of the church, you ideally want to have been to Oxford. Hmm. But I, I don't know what the prestige was compared to other universities. It's going to be a whole other episode universities yeah history of universities. i'm sure there's a podcast about it i bet there is maybe oxford actually has a podcast about the history of oxford because i know they have some cool podcasts i would not be surprised paula neville sington via the oxford dictionary of national biography says that after two years owing entirely to an argument over money between his father and the principal dr watley Tom was forced to leave Albin Hall. He eventually found a place at the academically inferior Magdalen Hall. Oxford is really weird, and it's spelt Magdalen, but it's pronounced Maudlin. Oh, okay. They like to confuse people. That's what my terrible dad joke a couple of lines down is about. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Now I know. So, according to the same source, Tom left Oxford in 1835 with a dismal third-class degree. Henry died while he was finishing, and his parents fled the country. See episode 7, Francis Mill and Trollope, part 3, for more details. Sounds like he was having a pretty maudlin time. Yeah, so now 
now all of our listeners are in on this in joke too, so you can all snigger quietly while you're listening to your podcast episode. <laughs> um, <laughs> yay! Hashtag dad jokes. I love dad jokes. Speaking of which, his father dies in 1835. Not really a dad joke, but yeah. And as we mentioned in earlier episodes, it seems like the whole family breathed a collective sigh of relief, although they would have also had grief, I'm sure, as with anyone you spend that much time with. Emotions are a mixed bag sometimes. Yeah, I think probably bittersweet. Yeah. At the end of 1836, Tom secured a post at King Edward's Grammar School in Birmingham. Yeah, that's still around. I just had a weird anecdote because I was a really cool teen and was on the debate school at sixth form, which I guess is it's when you're 17 and 18, so it would be like junior and senior in the US. And we debated them once. I I don't know what the topic was about. I think it was about boxing or something. I, yeah, I have no idea what the topic was. I'm pretty sure we won. but So I remember the important things. That's awesome. Per- personal connection to Tom's life. From what I remember, it's a very kind of prim and proper school. Huh. If anyone went there and has connections and wants to dispute that, I'm claiming no kind of expertise. I mean, it's been a while since you were there. <laughs> it was like a day's worth of impressions, right? Yeah. Yeah, it was uh, many years ago. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Tom doesn't really want to be a teacher. He wants to be a travel writer like his mother. So he grows to hate teaching. He turns to his mother for advice. And Fanny advises him not to give up his post because he's making 200 pounds a year. And like, you don't scoff at 200 pounds a year. Yeah, and I imagine Fanny as a person who has had to always write just to keep the bills paid is kind of... I can't imagine she has much time for him not liking his profession because he's earning good money. Yeah, and glamorizing hers. Yeah. Like, seeing it through rose-colored glasses, it's always kind of infuriating when people have this really romantic view of the very hard things that you do to get by in life. Yeah, I can imagine she was kind of proud but also frustrated. Mm-hmm. When Tom's sister Cecilia became engaged, though, Fanny needed a companion and had a little bit of a change of heart. She agrees that he could leave the job, basically, to come work for her. Yeah, so he works for her, kind of, jack of all trades, I guess, becomes a travel and literary agent, research assistant, companion, editor, whatever way he can make himself useful to her. Yeah. If you're into film noir, he's like, Fanny's Girl Friday. It's quite sweet, really. Just uh, there for whatever she needs him to do. This gives him time to start doing some writing of his own, believe it or not. Um, So he starts writing articles for periodicals, and his first book, A Summer in Brittany, came out in 1840. He received £300 and a commission for another book from his publisher, Colburn. So... £300 in 1840 roughly works out to about £25,000 in 2018. Um, And it's also interesting that Francis's name is given as an editor on both of the title pages. He gets selling power from her. Hmm. 
Yeah, he's riding on her coattails a little bit there. Like, name about like, I think probably in a justified way, she probably was involved. I, I don't know how much editing she would have done, but. That's an interesting question, especially because we do think of editing at this time as quite a masculine profession. Mm-hmm. And they've almost reversed the roles. Mm-hmm. And she's his editor and almost his um, kind of helping him with the practical side of things. Yeah, she's like a manager agent kind of mom. <laughs> yeah. Um, the two of them settle in Italy in 1843. And in 1847, Tom publishes the Tuscan Athenaeum, a protocol for English readers to disseminate information about Italy's bid for independence. And a young English poet by the name of Theodosia Garrow became involved in his efforts. So hopefully it's starting to make more sense why we kept talking about Italy and Italian independence when we were going over that timeline. Yeah, Italy Italy is super important to Tom and Fanny in particular. Yeah, Italian independence definitely for Theodosia. So if we go yeah. closer back to the start of that timeline and talk about Theodosia. But first, let's take a quick break. We'll be back right after this. Hi guys, Courtney here. I'm popping in to tell you about something cool I'm doing on Patreon this summer. As you know, if you follow me on Twitter, I'm taking my first ever trip to London in July. As a Victorianist, this is a momentous occasion for me. It's like returning to the mothership, as it were. And I am going to be doing as much exploring as possible in the time that I have there. And if you're a subscriber on Patreon at the $3 level or up, you can follow along on my Victorianist adventures. I'll be going to museums and galleries and libraries and doing walking tours and just generally taking in the sights and sharing my impressions with you via either vlog or audio journal. So sign up if you're interested at patreon.com slash Victorian Scribblers. And we're back. So she's born November 28th, 1816, and was the only biological child of Joseph Garrow and Theodosia Fisher, née Abrams. Her papa was, according to the Dictionary of National Biography, the son of an official of the East India Company and an Indian consort. Um, Mama was, according to the same source, a widow and a singer of Jewish extraction and had two children by her previous marriage, Charles and Harriet. Yeah, I get the impression from reading Theodosia's history that she's quite close to her sister Harriet. Theodosia grew up in Torquay, which is a seaside town in England, probably because she wasn't a very healthy child. Biographers describe her as, quote, small, fragile, precocious, hypersensitive, and very musical. The last one doesn't seem that in keeping with the others, but... Which one of these things is not like the other? (laughs) Um, So Theodosia published her first poetry in 1839 at the age of 23. The poems appeared in Heath's Book of Beauty and The Keepsake, um, both of which are sort of um, periodical publications, I think. 
like they're books that are re- released in a series, maybe sort of like Reader's Digest? I'm pretty sure they're annuals, so they're more like a volume book, but they come out, I'm imagining, around Christmas, because that tends to be the pattern. But they come out once a year and have these in, I'm pretty sure. No, that's that sounds right. My That's what my tired brain was trying to say, but <laughs> I couldn't think of the word. Yeah, it's been a couple of months since I've read a bunch about the keepsake, but I'm pretty sure it's an annual. Mm. Um, and apparently Theodosia was at least briefly as popular as Elizabeth Barrett, Elizabeth Barrett Browning, or Elizabeth Barrett at the time. Yeah, and she, I don't think we've got it in the show notes, but Elizabeth Barrett was also quite a sickly child, and apparently they made friends as children. Mm. They were both in the same seaside town, recuperating together and convalescing together. Okay, yeah, I couldn't figure out when they'd met with the little bit of digging time that I had. Yeah, I'm not sure how definitive and based on archival truth it is but apparently she and Elizabeth Barrett were friends as children or at least knew each other Mm -hmm. as children Mm -hmm. I mean it's always a smaller world than we think yeah definitely especially in the past yeah according to Melinda Creech who wrote an informative post on the Armstrong Browning library blog Walter Savage Lander 19th century English writer and poet praise Theodosia's poetry in a letter to Robert Browning. Quote, This very year there is in The Book of Beauty a poem by my friend Theodosia Garrow on Italy, far surpassing those of M. Angelo and Felicia. I don't even know if I said that right. Felicia, maybe. Yeah, I have no idea. Sappho is far less intense. Pindar is far less animated. End quote. Yeah, that's strong praise. Right. (laughs) Sappho doesn't have anything going for her as a poet compared to Theodosia, apparently. Way less intense. Someone who wasn't best pleased about that was Elizabeth Barrett, who apparently was a little bit either jealous or not fond of this kind of effusive praise. Yeah, she definitely took issue to this for one of those reasons. Uh, The Garrow family moved to Italy in 1844, when Theodosia was 28, and they settled in Florence. And Theodosia began translating patriotic songs to English, specifically the work of Dallongiaro and Giusti. So she's really keen to give English readers the authentic idea of what's happening in Italy, and what, I guess, what the feeling is in Italy. And this keeps coming back throughout all of her work. Yes. In 1846, she published what some have deemed her most ambitious translation, Giovanni Battista Nicolini's drama Arnaldo de Brescia. De Brescia. She published in Household Worlds and in the Cornhill magazine, another popular periodical during her lifetime. So not only was she gaining literary traction in Italy, but she was publishing in some of the most prominent periodicals back in England as well. Supposedly, her best-known journalism was for the Athenaeum. It was unclear from the source whether they meant the like the British Athenaeum or the Tuscan Athenaeum, which Tom is running. 
this particular series of letters was published in the London Athenaeum and has, I think it's been published as a book fairly recently. Oh, cool. We'll see if we can link it then. Yeah, I'll find it. This is this series of letters is in the London Athenaeum, but she does also write for the Tuscan Athenaeum. Yeah, so she writes a series of letters celebrating the Italian independence movement, but specifically for a British audience, it sounds like. Yeah, it's this thing she's really keen of, kind of translating this for the average British public periodical reader and really wants them to understand what's going on in Italy and what the feeling is. And after about a year, um, as far as we know... After about a year in Italy, uh, Theodosia meets Tom Trollope. He is, at this time, we haven't described really what people look like, and part of that's my fault because I'm not a very visual person. Um, but so from uh, descriptions of him, historical descriptions, Tom Trollope is 5'10", a tall blonde man with gray eyes who was shy with women unless they were willing to nerd out with him, basically. And Theodosia was more than up to the task. I'm trying to just think how to describe her. Is there only one picture? I remember thinking that she looked kind of... Um, she didn't look as sprightly as the descriptions of her made her sound. Yeah, I think this one picture maybe is later in life. She's got a very large dress on. Mm -hmm. What looks like a pom-pom in her hand, which I imagine is a fan. But I do like to I like imagine that she's doing some cheerleading. Mm -hmm. She's very... I don't want to put any kind of judgment on it, which is what's difficult. I mean, I think she's got a similar vibe to George Eliot, of very intellectual looking. She's very thin mm -hmm. and angular, almost bird-like. Yeah, she is very petite. Um, she's got more... Hmm, she's not a conventional beauty by 21st century standards, at least from, like, this blurry photograph, right? It's hard to say. Yeah, it's an incredibly blurry photograph. There's some... I mean, the few pictures that there are, the best site for them is this Florin, mm. the site of the English cemetery in Florence, which I would highly recommend, and the... I don't know which what her job title is, but the keeper of the cemetery, Julia Bolton Holloway, is a brilliant person and very interesting if you can read up on anything that she's done. I went there in September and had a great talk with her. She's the best. Just a really welcoming, nice person. Because the one picture that she was really keen to show me is one with Tom, Fanny, BJ and Theodosia in Villino Trollope. Part of what... I think part of why she looks so... She looks very stern in this picture, and I think it's partly this Victorian hairdo, which I really dislike this particular style. It's middle part. Um, they kind of, like, pull both sides to the side, but in a way so that, like, the, um, the, the hair just sticks out more to the side. I was going to say, it almost looks, in modern terms, as if she's got a bump it on either side of her head. Yeah, that's a good way to put it, yeah. <laughs> I, yeah, I just couldn't get past it. <laughs> it's odd. It's the worst Victorian hairdo I see. So, like, there are some that are very inventive and very elaborate and look very uncomfortable. This one just, I don't think it's 
flattering to any person at all. I also think her sleeves are a choice. Mm. I really want to know when this picture was taken. Um, yeah. <laughs> so Tom and Theodosia are married on the 3rd of April, 1848. Um, two years later, Theodosia came into an inheritance from her half-sister Harriet. And Tom and Theodosia bought a large three-story house in the Piazza del Independenza, which is the place that we keep referring to as the Bellino Trollope. I don't know if it's pronounced Trollope. I don't know why I always want to pronounce it like that on the end of Bellino, but they buy this three-story house called the Bellino Trollope. Fanny moves in with them, as does Theodosia's father, and it becomes a kind of literary salon and a focal point for the English society in Florence. Yeah, it sounds like Theodosia in this period of her life is actually quite similar to uh, young Fanny Trollope, her mother-in-law, because she hosts salons at the Villino Trollope, and her events are a main attraction, especially of English society in Florence. But it's a huge hub for like the thinkers and writers and, and, and uh, movers and shakers, I guess, of the day. Yeah, so according to the Dictionary of National Biography, Visitors who included the Brownings, Pascale Villari, which I've probably butchered his name, Walter Savage Lander, Harriet Beecher Stowe, George Eliot, and of course Anthony Trollope were treated to talks of Italy's future, seances, which all the rage of the 1850s, and theatricals. Tom Stuckpart was Sir Anthony Absolute with his mother as Mrs. Malaprop in Sheridan's The Rivals. That just sounds fun. I want to go to a seance with the Trollopes. It sounds like a lot of fun. Tom and Theodosia had one child, Beatrice, in 1853. They called her Bichet because, uh, as Eleanor notes, they like to confuse people. Uh, yeah, and apparently it's the Italian way of saying it. Because I'd been saying beasts, and then I was reading some letters, I think that might have been Antine's letters, and the very helpful editor just put in a little note saying, pronounce Biche. Yeah, I was going to pronounce it beast as well. Because that's another thing where I would have pronounced it entirely wrong. Yeah, I thought I'd put a little note in. Apparently they're in search of a nanny or a governess while uh, Theodosia is still alive. In 1858, Francelina Trollope gets a letter of introduction to Francis Milton Trollope from Dickens. At the time, she's trying to move to Italy to become an opera singer. I don't think there's any recorded evidence of her using that letter. Okay. So it's a bit of a red herring. So she kind of pops in and pops out of the story with no real material impact. Yeah. It's a it's one of those... She's got a bit of a Chekhov's gun part. Right now she's turning, right? So it's yes. Francis Eleanor turning. Yeah, yeah. We're projecting to the future. You guys all have spoilers now. Um, so Tom's mother, Fanny, dies in 1863... Then a couple of years later, Theodosia dies, April 13th, 1865, most likely of tuberculosis, and she's only 49. So that's how long had they been married at that point? They got married in 1848. Yeah, so that's, what's that, 17 years? So at this point, we will pop back to Tom. We don't have a lot left to say about him because we're going to keep hearing about him when we move on to Francis Eleanor Turden slash Trollope's life later this year, but we'll give you a little bit of a sense of what comes next for him. 
He is completely inconsolable over the loss of Theodosia, and he declares, quote, Life and all its sweetness is over for me. But like his mother, he works through his grief. So um, his book, A History of the Commonwealth of Florence, comes out that year. Um, and his life moves at a fast pace. Sometimes life just does that to you. So the next summer, a new love interest arrives on the scene, Francis, Francis Eleanor Turnin, who is to be uh, 12-year-old Boucher's new governess. Um, the next year, in 1866, they marry. I believe that's towards the end of the year. It's either October or November that they get married. So it's a little bit of time. We're going to skip ahead a few years here. He just keeps publishing, writing a lot, has a happy time with Francis Eleanor and his daughter. Yep. So they publish a series together in Mary Elizabeth Braddon's Belgravia, The Homes and Haunts of the Italian Poets. So they kind of take turns writing a chapter each. And that's around 1880, 1881. That's cool. Braddon just keeps popping up everywhere. There was something else this episode that reminded me of her, and now I can't remember what. But um, Overall in his life, he wrote 13 novels, but he thought of himself more as a, as a historian than as a novelist. He wrote novels for financial reasons. They sold better than history books. As an adult, Tom was friendly, but not super social. He described himself as not clubbable, which I assume he means he's not going to get membership of a club and not that no one's going to beat him up with a club. Probably both. <laughs> Hopefully both. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, it seems like he relied on his wives for his social life, more or less. Yeah, his wives and his mother. He's a real woman's man. Mm -hmm. So you know the, I don't know if this is a thing other people have noticed, but there's this kind of trope about grown men drinking milk in lots of modern media. Is that a thing other people notice? That's definitely at least one instance that I've noticed. Yeah. Tom was literally the milk drinking dude that's like supposed to say something about who you are as a man, I guess. Often indulging in a cigar and a glass of milk after lunch with friends. Even in the Victorian period, actually, there's sort of this um, association of milk with being less than a sort of typical uh, type A male, I guess. So like you hear words like milk sop or um, I can't think of the other versions. But there's even a concern in the Victorian period that if you let your sons drink milk for too long, they'll grow up to be less less masculine than might be desired. My, my brain really went to knowing how much they loved facial hair. Milk is kind of a dicey thing to drink because of getting milk in your mustache. Mm. I just remember um, reading Anne Bronte's The Tenant of Wildfell Hall, and there's this whole discussion in it about... I'm going to forget the name, I think, of the protagonist. Her name's Helen, maybe? Um, oh, the, yeah. Yes, Helen is the woman. I can't remember any of the men's names. Yeah, she's er she's an early proponent of um, teetotal, of not drinking alcohol, of not giving your children alcohol. So she has her son drink milk um, at social gatherings, and everyone's, like, super concerned that he's going to be morally affected by drinking milk when he grows up. Yeah, and then his alcoholic father is the real kind of foil for that and is trying to make him drink wine yeah. with them in a really horrible scene. Yeah. And if you're not familiar with it, children actually did drink alcohol throughout the Victorian period and actually it was kind of safer than drinking water half of the time because cholera. Um. Yeah, it's kind of like what we said right at the beginning about the beer at Winchester 
mm-hmm. where Tom says that beer is the only thing they have to drink there because obviously it's safer than the water. Yeah. And it's like, yeah, not root beer, like actually beer. Yeah, legit ale. In Francis Milton Trollope's uh, The Vicar of Rexel, there's this kid that's just getting wasted all the time, just like going around town drinking like tumbler after tumbler of wine and everyone's like mildly concerned, but also like, okay, you do you, kid. That's bizarre. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> George Eliot's partner, George Henry Lewis, declared him a most lovable creature. So even though he's... um maybe more reserved and less performatively masculine than his peers. People really liked him, and he did develop friendships and make impacts on people's lives. Um, He was also really generous as a writer, I think, maybe paying it forward from how his mother helped him. So he's thought to have provided the plot for his brother Antony's Dr. Thorne, and to have provided some material for Eliot's Romola, which was published in 1863 and set in Italy, I think. Yeah, set in Florence, mainly. Um, So he kind of sounds like he was a little bit of a research consultant for his fellow novelists. Yeah, it sounds like the research is the part that really interests him. Uh, Romola is a historical novel, so knowing his interest in history and his familiarity with Florence, I'm really not surprised that he provided some of the historical details for her. Yeah, me neither. It made a lot of sense when I read it, yeah. So in 1873, he and Francis Eleanor moved to Rome. And in 1880, Bichet married Charles Stuart Wortley, but she sadly died in childbirth the next year. In 1887, they moved back to the UK to Devon. And uh, we're doing a huge jump here, but some of these details will be filled in, like I said, in later episodes. On November 11th of 1892, Tom died suddenly in his sleep. He'd been married to Frances Eleanor for 26 years, and she wrote of him, quote, I never detected in him one base, insincere, or ungenerous thought. Flaws and errors there must have been, because he was human. But of envy, hatred, malice, and all uncharitableness, he was incapable. Yeah, I think from researching the pair of them, this is the thing that really strikes me is just how close they are and how much of a wholesome relationship they have. If either of them, because I've looked through quite a lot of their letters, and if either of them write a letter, there's almost always a postscript from the other or they reference another. Uh, actually, if I can run off and tra- see if I can find my notebook, I might be able to find a really funny anecdote that I found in one of the letters. It's just such a... I imagine by now you know how fond I am of dad jokes. And part of the reason that I like Tom as much as I do is because he is also a real big fan of dad jokes. <laughs> I'm jumping around. I can't read my own writing because it's one way you can't take a picture. You have to transcribe it all. Okay, it's actually a letter. The end of August 1867. Francis writes to Biche. I must give you but a shabby scrap today, for there is no time for a letter. But I would not let papas go without a line. And she writes of BJ's cousin Clara that she begged to know what little present her uncle Trollope had selected for her. In reply, he says, I must tell her that the post does not carry dog's meat, so he couldn't send her anything. Such a bizarre thing to say, but also really endearing. (laughs) Yeah, it seems like they were a really tight-knit a jovial family, that's for sure. Yeah, and I think from the letters between... I mean, I'm jumping ahead a bit now if we can talk about Francis Trollope. 
Prince Eleanor and BJ. But then there's never a weird stepmother aspect. It seems like she's always respectful of Theodosia and is never trying to take her place. That's good. Yeah, it's always um, it's always a little bit suspenseful when you read about someone becoming a stepmother or someone getting a stepmother historically. Yeah, sorry, I just had to pull out the dog's meat letter because it's bizarre. No, that's <laughs> that's awesome. Yeah, it sounds like the weird kind of thing a dad or uncle would definitely say. Yeah. <laughs> we, I guess, will be back with some of Theodosia and Tom's writing soon. And don't miss the recipe for dry baldy biscuits in the show notes. No, I'm definitely going to try that too. Maybe we'll post some pictures. Um, but yeah, we'll be back soon with some samples of writing and some talk about writing process. And um, we hope you enjoy this episode despite my gravelly allergy voice. And my being all over the place trying to tell slash retell dad jokes. <laughs> so thanks for listening everyone thank you for listening victorian scribblers is written by me courtney floyd and my co-host eleanor dumbbell all episodes are produced by me with editing assistance from eleanor the podcast is made possible by donations from listeners like you if you liked what you heard today and want to help ensure more fabulous content head to victorian slash support us after the ball, sung by Mr. George J. Gaskin. A little maiden climbed an old man's feet, and for a story to like sleep. Why are you single? Why live alone? Have you no babies? Have you no home? I had a sweetheart years, years ago. Well, he is now and you will soon go. Let's do the story. I'll tell it all. I believe her All of the music for this podcast is courtesy of Muse Open and Free Music Archive under Creative Commons Attribution Licenses. Our theme is Joseph Miroslav Weber's String Quartet, number two in B minor, performed by Steve's Bedroom Band. The music for our Around the World feature is Puddington Bear's Bit Rio, and our closing music is George J. Gaskin's 1893 performance of After the Ball. After the ball.